Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Hello, hi, welcome back to the show. It's episode number four, and today I'm pleased to bring you my interview with fellow sommelier Femi Oyedaran, co-owner of Graft Wine Shop in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, we are tackling one of my very favorite subjects in life, which if you're tuning into this podcast, you probably already know I'm talking about wine. But if for some reason you did not know, I never miss an opportunity to tell people that my first meaningful vocation in life was as a sommelier. So it is fitting that I use this episode as an introduction to me, myself. So one of the first real insights I ever had about wine and really one of the first insights I ever had in life with real conviction was that wine was a language. And I have to say that this ended up being one of the few convictions as a teenager that I was right about, but I was right in that assessment. And within this epiphany, the thing that really captured my imagination and my attention wasn't so much about the content inside of the bottle, but really how the language that people who were in the know used was a language that was beyond the words that were being conveyed. So it is a language that I opted to learn very early on, and it is a language that served me in every single way. If for no other reason, then I am a person who loves pleasure. I am a hedonist. And so finding a bottle of wine that delights me is still one of my favorite things. We are talking about wine as a passport and wine as a way to move around the world, as it was for me, and be in conversation with people who did not share my language, but people who I could share a conversation with about esoteric concepts of the senses and soil. And as you can all imagine, the wine industry, especially in the early 2000s, was a monoculture. It was before social media, and the only way we could learn about wine was in bookstores. So I used to spend entire shifts. I used to do shifts at Powell's Book, and I don't mean that I worked there. I mean, I would just pull up and grab an entire tome dedicated to wine And I would just read inside of Powell's bookstore in Portland, Oregon for hours and hours and hours. And eventually I just became 
overwhelmed with the myopia of the industry and went on a quest to find other Black people in the wine industry. I literally went to Africa, which is something that I am now kind of sheepish talking about. But, you know, I was 24 years old and I was naive, but I had built an entire thesis that wine could be used as a catalyst for economic development, for Black empowerment in the Western Cape of South Africa, where the wine industry is there. And at first, I wanted to build some like wine academy, which didn't end up happening, but we did start a 501c3 nonprofit with one of my childhood best friends, shout out to Pepper. And I learned a bunch. It was my first foray into entrepreneurship. And more importantly, it was really the first time that I knew that my career and that my work had to have some deeper meaning and pursuit. It couldn't just be about the bag or the thing, whatever the thing was, in this case, one. And specifically, I started connecting land-based liberation as a central rallying cry for displaced and marginalized people all over the world. I became obsessed with using wine as a medium to tell stories about absence, about the equity of absence, and I made dear and lifelong friends who really taught me about not only wine, but filmmaking and storytelling. So wine taught me unequivocally the power of story. The first film that I ever produced was for this nonprofit that I started, which we called the International Society of Africans in Wine, which is a mouthful. So the acronym is ISAW. Anyway, we shut down that business in 2011 because recession and uh, ended up moving back to California to re-engage as a sommelier after my hiatus as a social entrepreneur before eventually switching back again and starting this very media company in 2016. So anyway, tomorrow's my birthday, and as a gift to myself, I'm going to be turning in the first 100 pages of my book, Black Terroir, in which I am not only unpacking the things that I've learned from wine, but also using wine as a way to think about the biggest problems and the biggest ideas in our society through both a contemporary and historical through line. Part metaphor, part memoir, Black Terroir. I can say that things are much different in the wine industry today, and people like Femi, who also grew up in the industry, is more connected. I feel more connected to people like Femi because of technology that helps keep us connected and aware of each other in ways that are unprecedented, certainly when I was coming up in the wine industry. Femi, like me, found a passion for wine at a very young age in life while working at the Charleston Grill. He made the rare achievement of passing the first three levels of the Court of Master Sommeliers within his first two years. And in 2018, he was named Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 Under 40 and Sommelier of the Year by Food and Wine Magazine in 2019. This is an accomplished man. Next up, an interview, my interview with Femi Oyedaran. First and foremost, I know Celine wants us to begin the show by sharing a drink. You know, I see you got your wine glass active. Let's go. <laughs> On brand. <laughs> 
totally on brand. Let me get on your level then. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I like this start. So what are you? Uh, what's in your glass? What are you vigorous? So just whip this out. Um, this is uh, from a friend, Hardy Wallace. You might know him formerly of. I do. ATL's uh, own. Yeah, ATL's own. ATL's own. Hardy Wallace is his new winery, Extra Dimensional Wine Co. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> and this is their five points. It's a blend of five different kind of Rhone style varieties from different sites throughout California. And uh, these wines are just kind of coming to the market. So I figured what better of an opportunity to uh, crack open some Hardy. I'm with it. Look at you <laughs> breaking new wines. I, yeah. I wasn't, um, I'm not familiar with the brand actually. I haven't seen it before. So I feel. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're brand new. Um, and uh, I think they're just going to be coming to the state of South Carolina either this month or the next. Okay. So I'm sure not too far behind in Atlanta either. Dig it. Dig it. Dig yeah. it. All right. Well, I guess, um, I'm kind of in line with that. Drinking similarly, you probably know this wine. This is from Michael. Is that Michael? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the 2020 North Coast blend that he his red blend called Monkey Jacket. Monkey Jacket. That's a yeah, one of our favorites. You know, that's one of the wines that we put on the shelf, and someone could do very well opening a wine store and just having. Michael Cruz, Sparkling Wine, and Monkey Jacket. Let them know, bro. <laughs> but don't let them know too loud because that's how stuff gets out of control expensive. I know. So I need, I need yeah, to be yeah. the arbiter of, of keeping them off the scent every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, cheers, you, homie. Yes, sir. Cheers. Oh, that's always hitting. Man, a Michael Cruz themed wine shop. You got me thinking now, actually. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Well, man, let's let's talk about the wine journey since we're already here. Yeah. My whole media career came through the vessel, the portal of a young sommelier. Yes. That was a very long time ago now. You see the gray hair. <laughs> looking at you and looking at a whole generation of black psalms now, the world feels much different. But I know in some ways we still have many of the same challenges too. So let's talk about your journey specifically in wine. What is your sommelier origin story? You know, what's kind of funny is that if we go way back, I grew up in family immigrants. You know, my parents emigrated from Nigeria in the late 80s. And along with that, you know, I think there's a certain culture for a lot of Nigerian families that kind of abhor alcohol or drinking. And my parents kind of fell into that, that line. So what's funny is that I, I really grew up in the absence of alcohol being around me and always kind of looked at it as something that we just didn't do. So when I got older and became independent <laughs> and I started drinking, my parents didn't know that, and I got my start at a restaurant in Charleston called the Charleston Grill. I didn't know anything about wine. And, you know, if you don't know a lot about wine in a restaurant like that, you quickly feel alienated. So I kind of took it upon myself working as a server assistant. You know, that's what they call busboys these days. But I was working as a server assistant and I wanted to, to grow while I was in the restaurant because I realized I'm spending all this time here. I should leave with something, right? I should leave with some piece of knowledge. And the wine director, Rick Rubel, was really incredible, just affable character, someone that really loves to share knowledge and time, which is really important. And I just started reading independently on my own and Rick caught on. He said, you know, what is it you're up to? I can tell that you've been reading, you, you have all these questions. Are you trying to learn? And I said, yeah. And he was like, you want help? And I was like, if you have time, 
He said, meet up with me on Saturday. And he said, bring a few others. So I invited some of my um, coworkers to come along with. I think it was a total of the four, four of us the first time we met. And we had a tasting on a Saturday and he opened up all these amazing wines. And it was a really great experience. He said, let's do it again next week. And then we did it again the next week. And then it became a regular tasting that lasted for about, I think, between four and five years for me. And that really kind of served as the launching pad for my interest because I always knew at the end of the week I had something to look forward to. So I would spend the days in between reading and learning, really trying to build an understanding of this theme. And it originally it started to just this curiosity, but then it quickly became this obsession. I'd seen it before, you know, this type of obsession, this uh, wanting to learn more of something and not being able to stop until my hunger is fed. And that's something I really felt with music. And I felt the same rush and wine was just incredibly exciting to me. That's so so I can only imagine then your parents, they don't drink. I don't know what's going on with your mom. We just talked about your dad who's working for NASA. Yeah. What is going on with, I mean, I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions about like expectations yeah. that were being set on you as an immigrant son. What was the vibe when you shared with your parents that you were going to go down this path of professional wine drinking? Yeah, you know, that's, it's always been a big thing. The honest answer is I don't really have much of a relationship with my father. That's a much longer, deeper story. But my mother and I have been very close for a long time. And <laughs> this is the way it went. So in, I think when I was 25, I passed the certified Sumway exam and I got the highest score. And at the time I was thinking, okay, <laughs> this is going to be my weapon. I'm going to use this to tell my mom what I'm doing. So I called my mom. And I told her, I was like, hey, mom, I passed this exam to stay with wine. And I was incredibly scared, worried about what her reaction was going to be. But it was actually quite the opposite. She was super cool. And her answer was really just, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but if you're happy, I'm happy for you. I think that was a really big shift for the relationship with my mom and myself because it gave me a lot of comfort and breathing room to feel like I could be who I am and chase the things that I wanted to do. And my mother has been one of my biggest supporters. But yeah, it was pretty crazy because my mom found out through logic in that conversation that, yes, I also drink. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to be out here scoring on that test. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, shout out to mom, man. So what about just the, I mean, I, I guess like for me growing up in Georgia, it feels like the inevitable elephant in the room. The big ass question is like, what was it like for you? Again, first generation experiencing the U.S. through the lens of the U.S. South as a black man. How did you grow up as you moved throughout the South? What was your experience like growing up? My experience in the South was pretty limited. You know, we were really in Alabama until I was about, I think, like five. I've just really heard stories in terms of what my parents' experience was. They had a very different experience because they were immigrants, but my father was an engineer at the university. Mm. And they definitely encountered racism. There's a story of, I think, uh, someone called immigration on my father, tried to report him as an illegal immigrant, someone who worked in aerospace, something of that nature. I can't recall what the story was, but, you know, there was, there was definitely a lot. I mean, as you would expect, you know, I mean, I can only, I always like think about what the, the horror stories would be from my parents being African immigrants in America Mm -hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I look at the conversations I deal with Man, on a regular basis. I'm saying I had to ask. I'm <laughs> like, what was, what was going on with that situation, you know? 
I mean, yeah. I, and I'm asking this, you know, obviously it's a central part of the stuff that I think about. And I got into the game around the same age you did, you know, early 20s yeah. when I started first testing and stuff. And it was just so overwhelmingly white that at first, you know, the the kind of curiosity, the not sure what you felt, that energy, like when you're when you're pouring over those books and you're trying to devour as much information as possible. That's really the main focus. But I remember for me, and I was in Oregon too. I, I was in culinary school in Portland, which is a very white place. And I remember just at some point being like, I've had enough. I need to go back to Atlanta. I feel very kind of isolated in, in my work, you know, around the wine. I wonder, A, again, because you, you know, you're coming up a little bit behind me, things have changed, but we're still talking about a space, especially the, the culture, the origins, the history that is kind of enduringly white and colonial and aristocratic and aspirational and all that stuff. Did you ever have to grapple with or have any kind of moment in which you had to sit with or reconcile your blackness in an otherwise like extremely white space? You know, in this space, I mean, that's been, it was my entire experience from going to distributor tastings and to wine events to the first time I sat an exam, you already have the weight of this feeling where you're like, there, I can see them judging me. Right. You know what I mean? Especially if you don't like me, I'm a, you know, especially when I was younger, I was very casual with my dress. You know what I mean? And, and I think also not coming in with bow tie or tie to every event tasting, people start to assume that this man can't be serious. And I think with like, say for instance, the court, you know, you're absolutely white. It's a sea of white, at least in the early days. you know, when I first would go to a lot of events, et cetera, and the people that would assert themselves, they would do such in a way where they would almost kind of like discredit me without me even knowing me. Just in their interactions, you know, you can just tell by people's behavior. So that was something that I, I learned quickly about where I stood in the industry. And that would even make me feel alienated back then mm. and make me question, what is my role here? Why am I in this industry if it's not an industry where I find, if I, I can't find my space in it, look at how it's defined, look at the people that are here. These are not my people. This is not the framework that I think has been built to include me. But it wasn't really until I saw people like Andre Mack and Dylan Proctor it wasn't until I saw them where I was like, okay, I get it now. Mm -hmm. There's a whole another lane that I haven't seen. And the path has been laid. And I just kind of put my head down. I hit the books and I didn't care. And I just was like, all right, like this is war. I'm out. Let's go. Yeah. If you want to underdog me, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it. And yeah, I mean, definitely huge shout out always to Brother Mac and to D-Lynn. Yeah. But yeah, same for me, bro. Andre was the first guy that I saw back when I was reading about him in print magazines and watching how he's evolved his career is just remarkable, honestly, like gives, still gives me energy and inspiration. Yeah. Big, big shout out. So I'm actually curious your perspective then on where things stand in the world of wine now, because it's changed. I mean, we're talking about the kind of parts of it that remain entrenched, but it's also changed a bunch too, mm -hmm. especially I think a biggest change over the last decade, it's gotta be the natural wine wave, yeah. which I think has brought in a younger 
drinker, if you agree with that, I'm curious. But at the same time, younger folks are drinking less in general and across the board. We didn't have the whole wave of non-alcoholics until very recently. So as someone who's really actively in the game, because now I'm just a commentator, an observer, a consumer, what are you seeing as like the biggest changes over the course of the last five to 10 years in the space? And how are you squaring that with this broader trend of young people drinking less? Oh, yeah. With wine, there's been, I mean, so much change. I think there's a mountain of work that needs to be done, but I can confidently say there's been so much change. I mean, one, graph exists. To me, graph wouldn't be able to exist if there wasn't some change in the landscape of wine. And I mean that in the sense of what we wanted to achieve when we opened our store was we we just wanted to be a neighborhood spot where we could sell the wines we want to. They wouldn't be expensive. And we could do it in a way that we didn't really feel there was an opportunity for prior. I learned from hanging with a lot of my friends that didn't drink wine and would never identify themselves as wine drinkers that would drink wine in my house that they love wine. They just don't like the culture that comes along with it. Right. And when you think about it, wine is just something in the glass, right? It has no effect on the room or the people around me. It's a beverage in the glass. So you can change all of those variables around the room the glass sits in. And to me, I found that really interesting. So when we made Graph, I, I sought to create a space where the friends of mine that would come over to my house and, and drink wine and be like, wow, this is really good. And, you know, along with that, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The people that 10 years ago would not drink wine, they were into cocktails, they were into like beers or whatever. A lot of people are, are drinking wine a lot of them are also drinking, you're right, a lot of them are also drinking natural wines. There's been so much progress and the natural wine conversation really, to me, deserves its own because it's done so much on many levels. One, it really kind of broke down the barriers of entry for people who wanted to get into wine because I think with the culture that classic ideas like Napa, Bordeaux, you know, Burgundy, kind of the old school cultures of wine were the structures of that were kind of built as built around gatekeeping, right? You need to... <laughs> You, this is a luxury label. You need to know this person to get into this. You know, you'd order the right bottle at a restaurant. That's how you get cool. And with natural wine, it's like every bottle is cool. You know, everyone's got a story. Let's celebrate small growers. These wines are, this wine is really inexpensive, but wow, it's amazing. You don't have to be a baller to be drinking exciting wines. All of these things, I think, have really kind of contributed to the world of change. In the last couple of years, I've seen so many more men and women that look like me coming into my store, knowing about wines they want to drink, knowing about labels they love, casually talking about different producers. It's amazing to watch. I mean, athletes are contributing to that as well. You know, it's whether or not we want to accept it, the, the influence celebrities have over culture is a reality. And seeing people like athletes or music celebrities that are touting the wines that they drink and the good, the good wines they love makes wine alluring and it makes it part of the everyday conversation versus before it was more relegated to the idea of, you know, a grocery store task. So, yeah. And I'm thinking specifically about the wave of NBA players who are extremely into wine and not what we would call like trophy wines, but really like the geeky, if you know, you know wine. Still kind of showy. Yeah. Some cases, you know, but also like, huh, 
And I feel that that's a thing that is kind of a trend, you know, over the last five years or so, too. Yeah. I want to talk about music because you use a couple music references. Yeah. We're talking about digging in the crates. You're a music guy, a musician. How, if at all, is that showing up in your life still today? I'm sure you're obviously a lifelong music lover. And if not as an active practice, can you just let us know who are you listening to? Who is an artist or a group of note in your life right now? Uh, yeah, still very active with music. To me, the combination of music and wine is a one package deal. It's what got me really, really into wine because there's a certain thrill of, <laughs> I'm going to use Drake for one time. This Go is ahead. one time I use a Drake quote in a wine interview. <laughs> it's, your, it's your turn to cook. So Go ahead. Drake's got that one quote. He said, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And, and I love that because with wine, there's so much, I think, an experience with wine where you are learning and tasting something exciting for the first time, right? And it doesn't have to be a super expensive bottle of wine, but I can remember the times where I was with someone and they were like, have you ever had blah, blah? And I'm like, no. And they've told me a short detailed story about, you know, whether it be like old vines of Alagote from... Mm-hmm. Hill of Montluisance or whatever, or Mencia from Ribera Sacra from, you know, Vertiginous Slopes, you know, something like that. And and you had that wine for the first time and you're blown away. There's something that is so magical about that experience of giving something new to your taste buds. You know, you're learning something new. The possibilities of wine to me change every day. And you have to have a level of curiosity to kind of really appreciate that. With music, it's very much the same thing. The sensory information that we have. I remember the first time I heard Fela Kuti Shakara as a child. And that tune is something that will always be with me. But also the first time I heard it to me will always stand out with me. The first time I heard those records. When, for instance, and, and Fela is kind of like easy cake, but I've seen it where people come into my store and I'm talking to them about wine. I put them onto whatever glass that I think is really exciting. They open the bottle like, wow, this is incredible. And then we get into a conversation about music and like something like maybe like Fela comes up and I'm like, oh, you've never heard Fela Kuti. <laughs> like, let's go. You know what I mean? <laughs> How much time do you have? I'm like, okay, I'm going to take you on a tour for 30 minutes. I'm going to put on three different records and you're going to enjoy that glass of wine. After that glass of wine, I'm going to put you on to something else. Like, to me, that is like, you know, getting out of your chair. This is going to be fun. This is going to be a good time. I love that. I love that experience. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering who you're listening to right now. Yeah, you know, that changes pretty frequently. I go in and out from old to new. (laughs) I listen to so much every day. Um, You know, I know right now this is old, but Black Thoughts New Projects have been really Mm -hmm. in my air lately. He just did a release with Shane Yokuti. That's, I think pretty fantastic and then always a big fan of salt and man it's it's hard it's hard for me to kind of like place it because i know that's why i I have to ask my music people (laughs) that and watch y'all go crazy because sometimes i get overwhelmed by that question i'm like man there is so much i I gotta (laughs) it's the same thing as like so what's the best one what's your favorite yeah Okay, so I guess one of my last questions then is, it seems like, you know, you seem like a chill dude. 
you got a good thing going on. You got a wine shop. You're hanging out in Charleston. You're on the bike. You got your music playlist. It seems like you got a lot of things figured out. What's your level of ambition? Are you content or is there more? Is there something that's got you awake at night right now? You know, I think that there's always more. And my life experience has taught me that, or not really taught me, but shown me the possibility that certain things don't last forever. And I've seen what it's like to lose, not everything, but most things. And that is will always be a reminder to me of, well, one, where I've come from, what I've emerged from, and also a reminder of the fact that got to keep hustling. Yeah. So I don't think like being content for me is really ever going to be a thing because I feel like to not drown, you have to keep swimming. And I would rather be as far as possible, as far as possible from, you know, the abysses I've climbed out of. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd love to keep pushing. I want to do more. I am constantly asking myself what's next. Like, you know, a set of dominoes. I kind of just watch where things fall and I adjust as it comes. And uh, it's worked out so far. So we're going to keep going. It's definitely working out. You know, you are Nigerian. So, of course, you're going to have many hustles going. I know the carry last. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, man, I'm I'm so glad. And I'm just a fan, bro. Like, major salute. Going to continue to root for you on the journey. And next time I'm in Charleston, pull up and drink some Ribera soccer wines. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, well, how about this? Is is one to close on. For people who don't know about the name, how much does this come up for you, the name Graft? Can you- oh, every day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people are always puzzled. They're like, why would you name your wine shop Graft? Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, let, let them know the significance of the name. Yeah, you know, Graft is a – when we were looking for names, we wanted – one word that would resonate with what we were trying to do. And when graft came about, it made complete sense. It's a viticultural term. Basically, many vines in viticulture are, in fact, grafted vines. And it's part of the process of creating and maintaining a vineyard, right? Grafting is a part of growth. And for us, and what we wanted to do in Charleston with wine, the idea of grafting and creating our space, our vision, our experience, it just seemed perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, and people still ask me still, you know, do you know graft means this? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure the assumption is made when you walk into a wine shop, it's called graft. That the, 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 the reference is to wine. So, yeah. <laughs> right on, man. Yeah, I love that. It's a really, really good name for a wine shop. Yeah. All right, Brother Femi. Well, thank you for making time to join me on the Stephen Satterfield Show. And we'll be in touch soon, no doubt. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, bro. Be easy. <laughs> Peace. Peace. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kolachek, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode, and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. 
You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com, or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 